I said this morning that everybody's life, including mine, can be summed up. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And I talked about the person who ought to get the glory this morning, namely God and Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. Now I'm supposed to talk about me tonight, which isn't as easy. But I tried to think, now what are these uh, times for, talking about yourself? And I don't think they are to inform you of facts about my 34 years of life, but rather to uh, say the kinds of things that will tip you off to who I am, the way I feel about things, the way I think, you know, to try to get inside my mind and my heart a little bit. I think that's what it's all about. So I looked back over my life and I said probably the way to do that would be to uh, focus on those people who have been the real input and shapers in my life and say something about them and why they've been that way to me. Uh, roots are very important and planters are important. And I'm going to talk mainly about one planter and then about a bunch of waterers. The planter I'm going to talk about is my mother. Um, my father's an evangelist, an independent evangelist who works mainly in conservative Baptist and independent Baptist churches. He turned 60 this month and uh, is still engaged in full-time evangelism, which meant he was almost never at home. Three-fourths of the year he was gone. Six-week crusades at a shot, which meant virtually that I was raised by my mother. And she did a remarkable job of holding down both uh, offices of mother and father and treasurer and educator and disciplinarian and yet stepping back and letting daddy be daddy when he was home. A remarkable woman. She was killed in December 1974 in, in Israel in a bus wreck. And I wrote a meditation a kind of tribute that I've never read to any group before. I wrote it, oh, I don't know how far afterwards, maybe a year later, so it wouldn't be too mushy. And uh, I want to read it to you because two reasons. One, uh, she stamped me more than anybody in the world. There's just no doubt about it. She didn't give me the content of my theology because she wasn't very much of a theologian, but she shaped the way I approached life. She was a dynamo. Uh, and made me love work. That'll come out mainly in this, I think. So I'll read this, and then we'll talk about some of the waterers after this, this giant planter is off the scene. I never got spanked for dirty in my pants, but I did for skipping church, which goes to show Mama cared more about keeping God's name and my soul clean than she did her own hands. She let me sleep with my head in her lap on a pew or draw pictures on a budget envelope, but that was because I was too little to understand the preacher and preferred Mama's company to the nursery. Later, when I had to give my first part in training union, that's Southern Baptist there. Right after promotion day when everybody's older, she showed me how to write the main points on a card and listen just before supper while I practiced on her and never let on it wasn't life and death. And it paid off, too. One night when I was just a teenager, Mama was extra happy. And then in a kind of by-the-way fashion, she told me why. 
Some lady at church told her, I hope Jim turns out like your boy. Well, she deserved that if I didn't. But she didn't get all mushy about it. In fact, she never did praise me much. She was too wise. Didn't Solomon say, a flattering mouth worketh ruin? Mama knew the good book, especially the Proverbs. Years later, when I was 3,000 miles away, she kept on quoting Proverbs in her salutations. The message was always the same, the pulse beat of her heart. Be wise, son. Be truly wise. Fear God and keep your heart warm. I wonder how she got on with St. Paul. They didn't think alike. Mama loved stories and action and light things and sweet things. And St. Paul carries an anvil in his pocket and hammers out long, heavy arguments. I reckon Mama read Romans out of duty, but probably only a verse at a time. But then maybe Paul couldn't imitate baby chatter or Mrs. Lauren Jones or all the characters in a church play. But Mama could. And then how she would laugh. Why, I've seen her and Grandma moan 130 years' worth of German sobriety guffaw till the tears wet the tablecloth. It would start with a short soprano burst that could split the eardrums and her silver head would toss backward and her long white teeth would flash under the sharp nose and her tanned neck would redden as the tendons flinched. Ah, she was a vision of health and joy. And I never felt better than when Mama laughed. And I seldom felt worse than when she cried. I got a speeding ticket one night, and she wept like I'd shot somebody. All the way to the station at midnight, she cried, and made me pay it off right then and there. One thing was for sure, I mattered a lot to Mama. She showed me how to do everything but golf and fish. Daddy showed me that. Mostly she showed me how to work, overlap with the lawnmower so you don't get skippers, Grab the Bermuda grass at the roots, then you, otherwise you'll be back next week. Hang up your clothes when you take them off, and you'll never have to clean your room. Make sure the grease is hot when you put the fries in or they get soggy. Run cold water over the pressure cooker before you turn the lid, and on and on went, spilling out wisdom for life. That's about all she knew, how to live and work. I never heard a philosophical word come out of her mouth. She wouldn't have known what to do with it. You can't clean it, store it, put it in order. So I learned to love work from Mama. Just rubbed off. Don't you always mimic the people you admire? And admirable she was. I never met anybody who didn't like Mama. She made life lighter because she never gave people burdens to bear. She was a people person, all right. Never did care much about famous places or popular pastimes. You couldn't pry her out of her hometown without the lever of her family. If it hadn't been for Daddy, we'd have spent every vacation in the backyard. Oh, how she loved to be at home with her family. Past tense. She's gone now. Mama's gone. I don't write that weekly letter anymore or get hers. We don't take so many pictures to send home. Three new grandbabies have been born. She never saw. The old house is sold. The roots are severed. And I look back and feel that it is an unspeakable grace that I was conceived in her womb. When I was born, the parent, not the child, was God's gift. Well, that was the planter, and uh, I'll never stop thanking God for mother. But that was 18 years' worth, and now Wheaton College. Three things happened at Wheaton that shaped me. 
uh, Noel sitting there with Karsten and Benjamin, all kind of looking sheepish. Was the most important thing that happened at Wheaton. I fell in love like a ton of bricks in the summer of 1966. And as I look back on how that happened, uh, I can't help but thank God because she turned out to be such a good mother and a good wife because I wasn't always thinking real clear about such things. She was the most important thing that happened at Wheaton. But there were two other really important things. One was Clyde Kilby, a literature teacher at Wheaton, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar. And those two men together, one dead, the other living, C.S. Lewis and Clyde Kilby, uh, conspired to kindle in me a tremendous love for nature and for poetry and for the power and beauty of the emotions in human life. Uh, Lewis goes on having a tremendous effect on me. I've read about 20 of his books, and Lewis moves me because he puts together two things that so many people today think have to be kept apart. Lewis puts together razor-sharp logic and profound emotion. He puts together imagination and reason. You know, the egghead and the warm heart, the cold head and the warm heart. He just didn't see any need to have such bifurcations. Later on, I wasn't going to mention Jonathan Edwards, but I can't help but bring him in here. I, I discovered Jonathan Edwards at seminary, who now, right alongside Edwards, is one of the most tremendous influences in my life. You know, Jonathan Edwards is dead. Uh, uh, he lived back in the 18th century. But Edwards is exactly the same way. He can go along giving this amazingly strong philosophical argument for something and then break into a meditation that would warm anybody's heart. And he never saw any reason why they should be in two different persons. Why not in one person? The third thing that happened at Wheaton, and this leads into the seminary situation, I lay in the uh, health center for three weeks with Mono. And... Uh, listened on the radio to Harold John Ockengay giving the Spiritual Emphasis series at Wheaton in the fall of 66. And I said to myself as I lay there with these huge yellow tonsils and the swollen pancreas and all that, I want to handle the word like that. Man, do I want to understand the word like that. Well, when I got over that and got out of the infirmary, I had to drop my organic chemistry class, so I abandoned my pre-med aspirations and headed for seminary with one goal, to know the scriptures well. When I got to seminary, Fuller Seminary, there also, I think it's three things that happened, right? Three things. One, Dr. Fuller, Daniel Fuller, probably the most significant person in shaping the way I think today who's living as far as my theology goes. What Dr. Fuller did for me, and I took every course he taught, and we correspond today, and I flew out to California two weeks ago to be in a group with him. Uh, he opened my eyes like nobody ever had to the beauty of the sovereign glory of God. And to buttress that, 
He gave me a technique of Bible study that today forms the backbone of my teaching and shapes my sermons and feeds my heart every day. And I don't have enough life to live to give thanks to Dr. Fuller for what he taught me. The second thing that happened out there was Ray Ortland, Lake Avenue Congregational Church. Some of you probably have read his wife's book, Upward Worship. Well, I was a member of that church, and uh, that's where I was ordained. And I taught Sunday school there, and there's where I discovered the local church and its potential. And there's where I discovered worship. I know what worship was before. Worship in my career had mostly been treated as a means to some other end, raising money or saving souls or increasing church membership. There, we worship because God on that Sunday morning was worthy of worship and the joy in him was an end in itself. And Ortland had a way of lifting people to that end. And boy, did I get hungry for that. And that is going to link up to what God's been doing in these past months. But there, I discovered the church and I discovered worship. And so I put myself under the care of the deacons there. And that led to ordination, ultimately, in 1975. But the third thing that happened there that shaped the last six years of my life was I taught Greek in seminary and I taught seventh graders, ninth graders, and young marriage in those two years at at Lake Avenue. And the upshot of all that teaching was people said, you've got the gift of teaching. Get on with it, which is what the church ought to be saying to people all the time. You've got this gift or that gift because you can't tell always on your own. So. Uh, I took the advice of some of my teachers and went on for that last degree that you're supposed to get before you can teach and uh, got that and then came to Bethel and for six years have been teaching biblical studies at Bethel. And uh, now what's happened is something like this. I told you this morning uh, basically what, what's happening. Those yearnings that Ray Ortland sowed in me, those seeds that he sowed back in uh, seventy and 71 are starting to bear fruit in the sense that I'm just not content anymore to explain scriptures in a classroom setting. I want to unfold it and apply it in a church and worship setting, which is why I am making the move that I'm making. Um, The college classroom is an exciting place to work, and I've seen lots of good things happen there. People have even been converted in my New Testament history classes. Not many, not enough to my satisfaction. But uh, college students are all pretty much the same in that they're all 18 to 22 years old, basically, or a little older, which means the the, uh, nature of the problems you deal with and the, the age span is very uniform. And I've got this increasing desire to see the word of God applied across a broader range of problems in people's lives and a broader range of ages. And that probably has figured as much as anything in causing me to make the move. I want to address a flock week after week and try to draw them in, like I said this morning, to an experience with God that gives them more joy in him than they have in anything else and thus magnifies Christ. And so, back in October, 
Uh, the desire became irresistible. I talked it over with Noel a long time. I sought counsel from assistant pastor. And everybody confirmed me in the direction I was moving. And so I went over to the conference, talked with Dick Turnwall, with Delmer Dahl, filled out one of their ministerial forms, sent one down here to Warren Magnuson, and uh, Marv called me on the telephone. And uh, I'll probably let them take it from there. We've had some good conversations together, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the trust they've put in me so far. And uh, Char's words at the beginning are very valuable to me because we both really need wisdom at this point Uh, When I look at this church, when I look at any church, I uh, shake in my boots, frankly, because uh, the responsibility of being a pastor is so awesome. And in a church like this, 700 and some members with a very complex structure and tremendous amount of history and tradition behind it, uh, it's a little bit awesome. And you need to think very seriously about whether you think somebody like me is capable of it. When I, when I ask myself, are you capable, Piper, of stepping into a situation like that or any other situation, my answer is always no. No way. Who is sufficient for these things? And then I read a little farther down in the chapter of 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, well, we're not sufficient for these things, but our sufficiency comes from God. And so, if I am to make it in any church, whether it be a little one or a big one, it's going to be with God's help, and as has already been indicated, with the help of the prayers of God's people. I've just got to read a letter here. I almost forgot it. I'll close with this. I think my time's up. My dad's getting short shrift, so... Here's a letter, two-page letter from my daddy. And uh, he, his influence goes on, you see. Mother's is over. But his goes on. My father knows churches. He's been in hundreds of churches, almost all Baptist churches. He's seen every kind of deacon board, every kind of pastor there is. And here I come along and write him and tell him, What do you think, Dad? I'm going to quit teaching college. He's been real proud of me. I'm going to quit going to go into the church, wherever they'll take me. Now, he writes me this letter, and you've got to keep in mind, I'm just going to read four paragraphs here. He's never heard of Bethlehem, and I hadn't been in contact with Bethlehem when he wrote this, because he says some pretty negative things about churches. Because what he's trying to do is talk me out of it so that I'll really mean it if he doesn't succeed. This is what he says. Now, I want you to remember a few things about the pastor. Being a pastor today involves more than merely teaching and preaching. You'll be the comforter of the fatherless and the widow. You'll counsel constantly with those whose homes and hearts are broken. You'll have to handle divorce problems and a thousand marital situations. You'll have to exhort and advise young people involved in sordid and illicit sex with drugs and violence. You'll have to visit the hospitals, the shut-ins, the elderly. A mountain of problems will be laid on your shoulders and at your doorstep. And then there's the heartache of ministering to a weak and carnal and worldly apathetic group of professing Christians, very few of whom will be found trustworthy and dependable. Isn't that awful? You know, where's he been? He's not in the conference. He's never been in a conference church. Or has he? 
Then there are a hundred administrative responsibilities as pastor. You're the generator and sometimes the janitor. The church will look to you for guidance in building programs, church growth, youth activities, outreach, extra services, etc. You'll be called on to arbitrate all kinds of problems. At times you will feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. Many pastors have broken under the strain. If the Lord has called you, these things will not deter nor dismay you. But I wanted you to know the whole picture. As in all of our Lord's work, there will be a thousand compensations. You'll see the people trust Christ as Savior and Lord. You'll see these grow in the knowledge of Christ and His Word. You'll witness saints enabled by your preaching and to face all manner of tests. You'll see God at work in human lives, and there is no joy comparable to this. Just ask yourself, son, if you are prepared not only to preach and teach, but also to weep over men's souls, to care for the sick and dying, and to bear the burdens carried today by the saints of God. No matter what, I'll back you all the way with my encouragement and prayers. And that's the only hope that I have uh, entering church no matter where.